And now, making their way into the arena, hailing from the great pro wrestling state of Massachusetts, they are the hosts of the Top of the Cage podcast. Here are Bill and Juice. Thank you again, Rich Palladino, the voice of New England, even though we are clearly on a kick of Vegas wrestlers. So, Rich, you got to get yourself out here to Vegas so you can introduce these guys too. But I am the super producer. I am Bill, joined always by my tag team partner, my wrestling confidant. He is the future booking genius and the prince of pro wrestling podcasts. He is Justin Juice Cannon. Boom. Boom, baby. Like I said in the intro, Juice, we are on a little bit of a kick of Vegas stars right now. Last week, we had Gregory Sharp. And this week, it's only appropriate that we got Remy Marcel. These guys just end, ended. I think it's ended for now, but I ended their epic rivalry in FSW. So I definitely wanted to talk to both of them. Uh, they're two of my favorites ever since moving out to Vegas. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to both and pleasure talking to Remy. Remy had some great stories. We'll definitely have Remy on again. Great taste in movies. He's a Quentin Tarantino fan like me. So... You know, you learn all about him in this interview. Yeah, and it's he's quite the character, man. Just so much personality exudes from him. But we don't want to hold you back from this interview any longer. So, ladies and gentlemen, the 86er, Remy Marcel. Hello, everybody. Listeners at Top of the Cage, I'm Juice, joining my co-host, bill as always and we got a special guest this week for an interview he is the only fsw grand slam champion at uh, future stars wrestling the one the only the 86er himself remy marcel hey hey how you guys doing doing good man for people that aren't familiar with you i think the best way to start is just telling them what Eight miles out, six feet deep, what they six are really what that means. Cause I know not everyone might not know what eight miles out, six feet deep means. I know it took me probably like a couple months after I moved out here to learn it. I guess the concept really kind of started with um, at the time I was in a tag team with my buddy Jack Manley, and we were the whirlwind gentlemen. And um, uh, we also had a, a buddy that you might be familiar with. His name is Kevin Cross, Carrion uh, Cross for all the WWE fans out there. Anyway, long story short, we were, all three of us were trying to get jobs with ROH when they came out to uh, Vegas because they were doing a lot of shows at, at like the Samstown Arena. Uh, so we went down to try to get jobs or at least a look-see. And um, they, they, they gave us the, uh, the fade pretty good, man. They, they didn't want any part of us. Uh, they didn't really kind of uh, open us with welcome or warm arms. So uh, obviously we left that night and, uh, not bitter, but definitely like, man, the fucking business can be ruthless sometimes. So um, we jokingly to make everything laugh and to, and to come away with a good experience, we thought we were just going to um, joke around and be like, well, I think we should just start fucking burying these motherfuckers, uh, meaning the business and everybody in it. Uh, so uh, the term eight miles out and six feet deep kind of came about. And then from that, 
uh, we started to just call our group the 86ers. Um, obviously, Kevin went off to do uh, AAA and Impact and eventually WWE, while me and Jack kind of uh, we went another route and went international with our stuff. Uh, so we went over to China. And they weren't really big fans of what we were already doing because our gimmicks at the time were very uh, babyface or at least good guys or uh, uh, couldn't be construed as being like popular. So out there, they wanted us to play bad guys. And uh, at the time, uh, they came up with these kind of these scripts of like artist uh, renditions. Um, so if you've ever watched any like backstage stuff that WWE had, they used to have like these uh, illustrations of what the undertaker was supposed to look like and everything like that. Well, they gave us these books and they pretty much wanted us to be bikers. Uh, so we were like, ah, uh, I don't know if we could pull off the bikers. I mean, Jack was pretty okay with being a biker. He had a like, nice beard and long hair and stuff like that. But when, um, when we came down to it, we were just like, well, what if we gave you this gimmick at the time? The 86ers was just like kind of bland and very rough drafty. So uh, they wanted it to be a little bit more pizzazzy, I guess, or at least something that can kind of, if they were to put it on like a movie or any type of television, people would associate it with it. So uh, Loki was doing the kind of the hitman gimmick at the time. So I uh, showed them a picture of like Loki and then we just kind of built it from there. Um, so his look was, you know, he had gun holsters. So we really wanted to do gun holsters and we just wanted to be gangsters if that was another alternative for them. And they were all about it until they finally called us like the legends of New York. So we were both built from New York, but neither one of us are from New York. I mean, I'm from Jersey, but um, so they call us the legends of New York. But uh, when I got home, uh, Jack stopped wrestling. He was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, take some time and just kind of figure out my life. And I obviously kept going. So while Kevin's in WWE and Jack's doing his thing, the only thing I can come up with was to keep evolving was the 86er. So I was like, I'm just going to be the 86er. And, Again, what the hell does that look like? And I just started piling on things that I liked. So I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan. And so I was like, if Quentin Tarantino was going to make a wrestler, who the fuck would it be? And that's what we got out of it was the 86. So that's where the inspiration comes from. Um, and I had only been doing it for now. It's probably been around like three years, three, four years. So I'm just starting to find like the niche. Uh, before I used to have like a gigantic Afro and, and just uh, bedazzle everything. I thought like that was going to be what got me to the next point. But ironically, uh, this guy that is playing a little bit more serious, a little bit more uh, deadly, uh, starting to get a lot more uh, notoriety than the Afro guy ever got. So that's kind of the gist of how that all came about. When we were talking about it in the parking lot and getting like um, talking about the 86ers, we always thought it'd be hilarious if we did like a Goodfellas kind of promo where the, the, camera guy was like in the trunk and that was the point of view you were seeing was this in the trunk kind of guy and i don't think i've ever seen anybody kind of do that before and so that's where the inspiration and then the concept just kind of flew from there man and that was kind of the uh the gist of how the 86er was born that's awesome and um i definitely need to ask a follow-up question because also like you i'm at quentin tarantino is my like he's my favorite director of all time favorite tarantino movie Oh uh, man, you know, like I, I know it's I know it's gonna be weird, but uh, so obviously Reservoir Dogs for a real long time. But I'm such a big Kill Bill fan just because I like anime and I like everything that goes along with like both stories, both one and two volumes. I I, I fucking love it. So uh, and then I don't know Quentin Tarantino to me. Uh, 
I feel like he's done nothing but gold. So like a lot of his movies are awesome. Like I, I just find myself stopping on them a lot. And if I have a go-tos, like if it's on like the queue, I'm definitely going to put it on. So Reservoir Dogs, number one, and then it kind of goes Kill Bill, both volume one and two. And then we can kind of get into Pulp Fiction and everything else that goes along with it. I'm also a big Grindhouse, you know, like that kind of stuff where uh, Ricardo Rodriguez was uh, doing some things. And at the time that I kind of came up with this concept, I really thought it was going to be an inspiration for like Lucha Underground, right? Because like I really wanted to work for Lucha Underground uh, for a long time just because I thought that that wrestling concept was just so fucking cool. And the way they did it, the way they filmed it, everything about it was so everything I wanted pro wrestling to be. So when that thing hit, I was like, yes, this is kind of what I want. Something darker, something cooler, and something a little bit more gritty. And that's kind of, um, yeah, man, that was, that was, that's kind of the inspiration from it all, man. I love Tarantino. He's crazy. So you mentioned the uh, Lucha Underground style and you mentioned wrestling in China too. Where else have you wrestled and how different are styles between, you know, between those places? I know we actually recently just talked to Gregory Sharp and, and he gave us some insight on, uh, you know, like China crowds. A lot of them don't really know what pro wrestling is. So I, I don't know if that's harder than some others. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Chinese people weren't uh, really familiar with what pro wrestling actually is. They did have some independence out there where that they were trying to like get the, get off the ground, but it was very like, nobody knew what the hell it was. And their, their culture is very like um, emotional or uh, like they get drawn into like these stories. Right. So everything that has to deal with like uh, their, their culture has these like really intricate stories about like love and all of these like emotions that go along with it. So uh, when we went out to China first, because me and Jack went to China first, we um, the story about that is like, okay, uh, long story, man, but I'll just kind of give it to you. I started with um, in Vegas, but I there was no wrestling here in Vegas. So uh, me and Jack and a couple other friends, we moved to the Enoki Dojo in Santa Monica. And at the time, they were um, shipping Rocky Romero off to go to Japan, and they were shipping nakamura to come to us because they were giving him uh time to get bigger so because they wanted him to take uh the iwgp belt off of brock so for nine months my my trainer was shinsuke nakamura so when i went to the dojo that's what we did we slept and ate and breathed fucking pro wrestling and nakamura was our trainer so it was grueling work and that was what happened but the enokis they shut down so there was really nothing for us to do like I came back to Vegas and there was nothing. And Jack moved to Florida because uh, he had some family in Florida. So I kind of followed his lead with uh, moving with my family. My family's from New Jersey, which, you know, we just talked about. And so the only school that was out there was um, the ROH camp. And so I went to Ring of Honor to just get into their school. At the time, they were um, picked up by HDNet, which was Cuban's uh, thing, Mark um, Cuban's like um, television network. And so they had a lot of really good, intricate writers to go along with that. Uh, I think Cornette was there for like a cup of coffee and everything was really cool, man. But it was really hard to break that threshold. So I was doing a couple darks. I, I had darks against Moxley. I had darks against pretty much everybody. But I wasn't nearly in the physique that I am today, nor what did I have the gimmick. I just had the afro at the time. I moved back to Vegas because it was, it was, it was just excruciatingly hard to try to break the mold. And I had a nine to five job that just didn't allow me to have those types of uh, opportunities. So I moved to Vegas. I was like, all right, I'll just try my hand on the West coast for a little while. And then everything kind of snowballed from there by getting out here. 
fast forward a few years and a whole lot of FSW moments later, and we're working for WWE as far as tryouts and doing the loop and getting extra work and all that stuff. So me and Jack uh, had this tryout or extra work with the WWE and we shit the bed, bro. I mean, we fucking shit the fucking bed. It was horrible. Uh, so we blew the international spot. We fucking shit the bed. We're coming home. We're just like, damn, man, I can't believe that happened. In walks this dude out of nowhere because I'm coaching for FSW2 on Thursday nights. So I just went back to coaching. It was We got home Wednesday night. I went in to coach Thursday night. And this dude comes walking in, and he's a um, performer for Cirque out here. It, it was the Ka show. And he's like, yo, my brother is a part of this Chinese company. They want to uh, start a pro wrestling company out here. Uh, we got some Japanese people who are on board and, um, and we would like to know if you guys want to come over and help train because you guys are coaches. And, uh, I was just like, at that point I was feeling so low. And when an opportunity like that happens, you, it was always taught to me to say, yes, I'll make it fucking work, man. So I was just like, yes, they're like, what, when can you go? And I was like, we can go fucking tomorrow if you want. But anyway, two weeks later I had visas and I was on the plane to fucking China. When we got there, I didn't know at the time, but Seema uh, from Dragon Gate was the other coach, the Japanese coach, and they were shipping uh, Dragon Gate people to China along with us. It was a little strange at first with um, both language and just the overall pecking order of what they wanted. So Seema was very Japanese lucha trained, Tori Yuman, this is what we fucking do, it's all about this. And they wanted a lot of the performance side because all of the kids that they ended up uh, bringing on to train they were all a part of Wushu or had some sort of martial arts background. The guy who ended up running the company was a movie director. He had nothing to do with pro wrestling. He directed movies and some really famous ones. So their first show they were building towards, um, they wanted it to be like uh, foreigners versus the Chinese kids. And that was like going to be the big bill for it. So we went out there for uh, what seemingly was supposed to only be a few months, but it turned into four months. And, uh, we had a tour there and then a tour, and then came back home for a bit and then we went back to do the show. So uh, the show was really successful, but these Chinese people were crazy, bro. They went into this like empty warehouse and fucking built it within 24 hours. And I mean, this thing had video walls and stadium seating and all this fucking crazy shit, man. It was wild just to see how in 24 hours what they could turn an empty warehouse into, right? And this thing drew a lot of people just because it was like out of nowhere in the first thing. The only other thing that went along with it is there was a lot of government involved. So there's tons of red tape and we had to perform this match. Uh, it was me and Jack versus a, a like a monk and the, what their character, their lead character is called the monkey King. And I guess like, it's a really traditional character and the monkey King is um, he just has like the monkey style to it, but he was really, really talented kid. And these kids were like, 16 17 years old right and they were incredible they could literally fly bro i'm not i'm not joking when i say this i mean they were fucking insane um so we did this match with them like so many times i mean so many rehearsals because that's all they knew was movie stuff they knew they had to rehearse everything so we did this match so many times for the government that by the time we went out there for the show it was clean it was just as clean as can clean can be um, so it was very popular. And then, um, what happened was they had a lot of red tape to go through before we could go start touring. So there'd be spot shows here and there where we could run shows, but it wasn't until almost a year into us being there that we actually got to tour around all of China. 
But yeah, Greg's right, man. The Chinese people didn't know what was actually happening at the time. They just knew it was either great or they didn't like it, or they just stood there and was very respectful. More often than not, when there was a lot of people there, uh, it was like a normal crowd. Like they would yell and, 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 you know, cheer. Um, so it was just depends on what we did, uh, as far as like a venue, what they ended up doing was, uh, they have the CBA out there. So it's a Chinese basketball league and they have all these arenas. And so what they did was they piggyback off of that and then went to, so if there'd be a Chinese basketball game Friday night, we were doing wrestling the next night in the same arena and then so on and so forth. Um, so sometimes we would draw shit, like a couple hundred people. And then other towns or other cities, we draw thousands. Uh, so their big thing is hot pot. Like they have a hot pot out there, right? That was the big uh, the big thing out there. So the whole show was derived around like this hot pot where people would eat the really spicy stuff afterwards. And that was like the whole gimmick. Um, but we were interrupting the whole entire show as, as Americans. And we got so much heat that it felt like Freddie Blassie heat. So as I was coming through the crowd, beating up the Chinese guys, when I would leave, the Chinese people were like tripping me and punching me and getting me out of, bro, no fucking joke. It was wild. And they're all apologetic when we get to the back, but us, we're like, yeah, man, this is what we fucking want, right? Uh, it was fucking awesome. So yeah, I mean, they were getting emotionally invested for sure. It just depended on what the environment was and how good the, the show was kind of kind of gearing themselves towards. But yeah, I started in the Japanese uh, dojo. That's how I kind of, I broke in under Nick Bockwinkle because he was out here in Vegas, right? So Nick Bockwinkle was the very first pro wrestler I ever touched in the ring. He just wasn't around for very long. And then they had this guy, this kind of uh, job guy, not job guy, but kind of an enhancement guy uh, out of San Antonio. His name was Scott Casey. And I guess his claim to fame was he trained Booker T. So Scott Casey was the one who kind of, broke us in so to speak in vegas as much as you could there's like an athletic commission out here so you couldn't really get or do a lot of shows until that thing dropped off i think it was like late 90s it dropped off um and so uh as we kind of go on uh with the japanese training and i went to roh and i did all this stuff i did some camps i do a, a, just about everybody so i in the, in a school setting or in a coaching setting i'm i have like tons of tons of experience um, just when it comes to the big time shows, and you know, it's kind of hard to break through being five six and one hundred seventy five pounds. <laughs> what would you say to somebody that is five six and one hundred seventy five pounds? Though I mean, yeah, from the now, yeah. it's it's it, you're fine. Now, just keep keep <laughs> training and doing your thing. When I broke in, it was all football players. They just wanted six six guys with you know jacked out of their brains. And if you look like you're larger than life, it was cool. But now our our culture and our business has changed so much that it's not really looked down upon. If you're a smaller guy, you just have to be larger than life in what you either bring to the table as far as character or your athletic ability or any of that stuff. If you're five, six at 175 and you're just breaking in, keep going, keep going, keep acquiring all that stuff and you'll be fine. We'll, we'll bring it back to the, to the world of uh, Las Vegas wrestling. So sure. You are somebody who, uh, is is very busy. I know when we were scheduling this uh, podcast, I think you said you had what thirteen weekends in a row. I did. I did. I just got done doing like it was. It was. It was twelve uh, straight weekends of uh, both work nine to five, and you know, God bless. I got a, a pretty decent job at the moment, but and then every weekend we had something, and then there was 
one weekend for AEW weekend where we started on a Thursday and then end till Sunday night. And there was at least eight shows within that time frame with Pro Wrestling Revolver and uh, Black Label and then obviously FSW. And then AEW, uh, some of them got uh, Darks or got on Dynamite. So, I mean, we definitely had like a really full schedule over the last like little bit. And also with California being close and Arizona being close, now you can start mixing in those cities as well. And it just becomes like, yeah, it's like an every weekend thing um, that you're hitting it hard. And I haven't had like a weekend off. The last weekend was like really my first weekend that I kind of had off in a real long time. Yeah, I know Juice Juice was uh, there for the uh, Double or Nothing weekend. And I know uh, you were somebody, I'm, like I said, I'm on the East Coast. So yeah. you were somebody that he mentioned right away, uh, you know, he was a big fan of. And I, he said, I uh, uh, appreciate that. Appreciate that juice. Thank you, brother. <laughs> and is and you were wrestling multiple matches per day during that weekend, right? I did, and and I refereed a uh, women's show as well. I kind of snuck that one in there too. So I, I I'm just like a jack of all trades when it comes to the pro wrestling business, uh, with, especially with FSW now. Like, not only do I perform and wrestle for them, but I'm also a lot of in the, heavy into the backstage. Not really into production as much as I am a producer. So production, we definitely have a, a, a really solid production team, um, but producing wise or agent or something of that nature, just because I'm a little bit more seasoned, uh, that's what uh, the promoter Joe DeFalco ends up uh, kind of delegating to, to me. Not only can you perform, but can you also help with everything else that goes along with it. So, uh, and I enjoy it, man. You know, the, there's aspects of the business, the business that I really enjoy. Uh, before, right before the pandemic hit, I really hadn't done anything substantial. So I was going to just try my hand at WWE. And so I had this tryout, all this stuff set up before the pandemic. And I was literally the next day on my way to the to the plane before they closed all the uh, flights down uh, because I was going to go and uh, try out. But the big thing was everybody was talking, hey, would you would you mind being a referee for him? And I was just like, no, I, I would totally jump at that fucking chance to be a referee. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so... I was, uh, that was what ended up happening was I was like on my way to go basically try out to be a referee, COVID pandemic. And then, uh, everybody that I knew there ended up getting released. <laughs> I know, I know that's the business though. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like 2020 and, and even just the past two years too have really kind of set the tone of, yeah, like the top tier, you know, more like WWE, AEW, you know, it's definitely getting a lot more cutthroat and, I mean, the thing about it, though, is, is the indie wrestling scene is just booming right now. Though, and I think you could definitely attest to that, too. I mean, the amount of talent, like I said, I'm on the East Coast and the whole New England wrestling area. You know, it's it's great. I mean, I know you could probably speak to the New York, New Jersey areas, too, and and Vegas and the South. I mean, there's just so many hot spots for wrestling right now outside of those big companies. So it's definitely nice to see a lot of those guys getting opportunities. Are you are you uh, are you familiar with Anthony Green since you're in New England? Is that oh, like a guy? Course. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. He's, he's one of our dream guests of course yeah man he was uh he was just out here not too long ago but we used to wrestle for a company out here in vegas and it's funny because there's all of these like indie pop-ups that are kind of like famous i think right now it's what is it defy there's uh prestige on the west coast i guess i iwc is that uh is that what you guys are uh, north northeast um and then i so, know limitless is out there right yeah limitless, limitless beyond beyond um, yeah because i watch chaotic. a lot of pluto i watch gotcha. a lot of pluto t- <laughs> uh 
on uh for their wrestling channel man um so yeah like all of these uh inspirational companies uh we had one out here called uh paragon pro wrestling and paragon pro wrestling was backed by uh like a promoter who had a, a little bit of cash uh but basically what he ended up doing was buying a bunch of wwe guys to come in and help out their backstage so we had d'lo brown gangrel matt striker and all these guys come in to teach us how to be television pro wrestlers and then the whole inspiration behind it was we were going to run out of vegas and it was paragon pro wrestling and anthony green that was the very first time i met anthony green and it, back then he was just all good anthony green you know he wasn't retrosexual at all and you get to see the evolution of him right and he's going he goes all the way to the tippy top and gets like a job at wwe man uh evolve and all that stuff so it's it's crazy to see how much uh these you start one way and then all of a sudden it can blow up into something that you never even you you can you never even thought of but that kid is so dedicated right like he's an endless knowledge of anything pro wrestling bro it's so wild yeah we've we've talked to a couple of his trainers um like chase del monte and um and, and just in person talking to max Smashmaster, and they they've said the same thing you know like like ag can tell you their match from like 10 years ago the exact venue how long the match ran like what the finish was like, I, yeah. I i can't believe that. <laughs> it's crazy and i and i love him for it and he's probably one of the better dudes i've met on the on the scene you know he's just super caring for the business and he wants to go out there and perform and he him and um rich rich holiday came out because they were doing like a uh, stint in california so they came out and worked that weekend as well and i got to work uh holiday for uh, a couple of the shows um and he's bro that dude right there for real for real is underrated or is going to be the next breakout whatever man because he's super solid in the ring like it was butter just working with him and then he, like the amount of heat that man gets is bananas yeah it's funny you bring that up because um <laughs> i remember l luck of the draw yes of course i'm a big fan of you but um holiday and green those are my guys from new england so of course uh i'm the they're both heels in that situation i'm the lone guy cheering for him and when holiday <laughs> comes out it's just me by myself bowing to him <laughs> like that and uh i'm like and during green's match i'm rooting for green and these four ladies are big uh jay vidal fans are just booing oh me. yeah tell me to go <laughs> that's awesome so i got i got a lot of heat for cheering for him <laughs> Bro, anybody that cheers against Jay Vidal is going to get heat. I'm not going to lie. Dude. That dude is, he's a superstar, man, now. And, like, it's funny because when he first came to Vegas, he was from the Gangrel school, right? So you knew he was solid. You know, Dave really trains those motherfuckers. Like, I don't know, man. There's a really good crop of guys who came from the asylum that were just really solid. And Jay was one of them. And he started off rough. Like, nobody really kind of gave him the, the, the time of day. And then all of a sudden, like what seemingly was out of nowhere but if you were here locally you knew that motherfucker was putting in time every single day like he'd be at the school i'd get there and he's and he'd still be there messing around when i left and we're there for like anywhere between six to eight hours you know get in at four wouldn't leave until 10 12 that night so uh he definitely put in the work to get to where he's at today and it's it's, it's fucking amazing that he's finally getting all of it you know whether it's um the concept shows or whether it's gcw like all of it uh, that he's ended up working for is amazing well deserved 
So from a trainer aspect, like when you see guys putting in work like that and getting their flowers, is that like rewarding to you as well, knowing that you had some sort of, not even if like you, you made it happen for them, but just like a, a part in, in, in making them better? Uh, you know, there, there is that aspect to it, but uh, any trainer or any coach is, is mainly doing it for the art form. Like we're coaching and we're guiding because we love pro wrestling and we love the art. And if they can go off and do something great, that's awesome. Would I think what I what gets me the most in that feeling if I had to go there is I'm not so much coaching, but producing. Hey, I have this crazy concept idea for you. I know it's going to be out of left field, but I'm going to really need you to go ahead and try this out tonight. And they might be hesitant. Ah, oh, fuck, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to do that. Please, please, please. All right, just for you, I'll try it out. Then it fucking works. And then you walk them, and then you see them back through the curtain, and they're just like, dude. And you're just like, yes, I know. And then once that magic happens, it's like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. But Because it, it's happened many a times where I go up to them with a concept. Hey, man, try this out tonight. Let's see what happens. Uh, if we can roll with it, cool. And it could be any number of things. I think like not to expose the business a little bit, but – few years ago, me and Jack were leaving for China, right? And um, this is, for me, it had never been done or I've never heard anybody do this, but I told I told the promoter, I was like, listen, I know we're gonna drop the belts because we're going to China. Uh, and one of them was to Chris Bay and his partner, Nino Black at the time. And I was like, I really don't want you to tell them that we're gonna drop the belts to them. Uh, I would really enjoy trying to see what they feel like or what their emotions are gonna be if they just never knew that they were winning. So we're in the back and we're setting up the match and it's fucking going, going. And we set up the match as if we were going to go the entire finish with us going over. And so I went to the referee. I was just like, hey, listen, uh, I'm not going to kick out on this move right here. And they're going to go over. Don't say nothing to nobody. And this is what we're going to end up doing for them. They're just like, the ref's like, okay, I got you. So we went out there. We did the damn thing. And sure enough, I didn't kick out. Like, dude, the dude who pinned me, kind of threw my leg out to see to make sure it was a kick out but we we had already told everybody that needed to know what was going on but it was that raw emotion fast forward a couple of years later chris ends up doing it to jay vidal with the no limits title and it was a beautiful fucking moment and so in those moments where the crowd is just as hot but the but the worker the performer doesn't know right so you're getting this organic raw authentic emotion in a in a play fight in something that's predetermined. And so like, I've never even heard of the, these things happening in our business. Let's see what happens when that develops. Sure enough, when they came back to the curtain, magic. Oh, fucking great. Love you. Da, 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 da. That was so awesome. And in those moments, I think it's very rewarding for everybody. Yeah, I can definitely speak to it. Like as a fan, just when you see a wrestler, just that pure pouring out of emotion, you know, when you actually do see the person behind the character, like it, it's just so beautiful. And, and just the way you were talking about those stories, like you said, I was honestly getting a little bit of goosebumps too. Like. <laughs> so I was just going to say, it's funny. You brought up the J moment. I actually saw the, the clip of him getting that win. And I was mm -hmm. like, that, that looks too good to be acting. Like it looks like he genuinely didn't know he was going to win. And this I was going to ask you that as a guy that's really part of behind the scene a lot. So that's, that's crazy that it was in fact not rehearsed and he had no clue. And that's, and it's, it's also good that for Chris too, cause that was a Chris moment, you know, that's it for, for a lot of us uh, who've come up a lot or have gotten a lot of like fruits for our labor we always want to give back. And that was like one of Chris's thing of giving back to Jay. He was just like, I really want Jay to have this moment. 
kind of like how you guys gave me the moment. And I was just like, that's a beautiful thing. And you don't really get that a lot, especially I, I don't know, man, I'm kind of indifferent about it, but there's a, a thing uh, where I feel like our culture or our community has stayed away a little bit from being the brotherhood. And it's a lot more cutthroat because everybody's trying to get that one spot or that or signed or whatever the case may be. So you don't really hear a lot of these beautiful moments between brothers essentially. And that's what this whole thing was supposed to be built off of is trust and brotherhood and all this thing. So to have that still be a factor in our profession, you know, I, I, I hope that lives on forever. You know, like if there's one thing that pro wrestling should never change is the idea of trust between um, everybody that goes along in there. You know, it's always going to be a, com a community or a, a group effort because it is the promoter booking. It is the production making you look good. The, all, all the unsung heroes, referees, the sound guy, like all of these people go into making this show amazing. And the only people that really get the benefit from it is the pro wrestlers or the workers. But you know how many like other people that uh, just don't get, you know, the praises that, work so fucking hard uh refereeing is one of them because like i refereed a whole entire show and i was fucking wiped <laughs> by the time i walked back into the curtain so it's just nice to have those aspects of the uh, profession still be very much uh grown or uh privy to what our community is doing nowadays you know so talk about the production everything that goes behind it recently you just had the end of your uh, trilogy fights with uh, Sharp for the Nevada State title. And that was really well produced from just not to spring, but everything like uh, you guys for each of the three matches, these beautiful like promo packages were made, which one's like your favorite that really like you, it got even you hyped for it. <laughs> uh, well, Mikey, Mikey, he's um, his company is called too sweet to delete, or you can look him up. It, um, I, I might be butchering his last name, but it's Mikey Morando. Um, but he does a little bit of the production for Warrior uh, up in Chicago. Like he does a little bit of their stuff um, as well. But he's a genius, like a mad scientist genius when it comes to that kind of stuff. So um, I was I was particularly happy with this last one because he came to me with the idea. He's like, man, I just want it to be like a Star Wars kind of thing where you're, you know, Jedi versus Sith. And we have this thing where you're going against each other and i, I want to do like a three-parter and i was just like oh dude this sounds fucking amazing absolutely so we go in there we cut some raw b footage of everything and then he releases it that morning before we go into the um to the match and without that i don't know if i'm as hype going into that match you know so i watched it that morning i was just like oh shit like this is actually going to be fucking amazing so i got i started to get real hype about it so i'm i'm Whenever Mikey comes up with a package, it's it's goosebumps kind of kind of quality for sure, for sure. And I think a lot of our uh, production has taken the next step up. If I had to be critical, I think our streaming is probably the next best thing that needs to happen. But as far as like writing the show or trying to overproduce the show, we have it on lock, and we probably can compete with any any major company that's out there, like GCW or Defy or or, or Warrior. Yeah, I'd love to see it. I One of the things I love about the ability to do streaming, whether it's through Twitch or YouTube or, or even Instagram Live at this point, is just how easy it is for fans to get access and how easy it is for you guys to have, you know, one match or one clip go viral and then all of a sudden everybody's flooding to your page. Mm -hmm. 
especially I mean I've I've seen a few of FSW's matches I'm you know very familiar with a few of the wrestlers as well and it, it's just the, the the quality and the production like you said it's just is top notch I mean your your trilogy was sharp I mean you know it's great it's good storytelling we love to see that like I said we recently had him on too and we said it, we would be remiss to to not mention you during that interview so we'd be remiss to not talk a little bit about him in your interview so um yeah. sure I hope, he, I hope he spoke highly of me that fuck. oh he did trust me he did <laughs> he was uh very very good praises for you for sure the irony of it is me and Sharp had known each other for uh, just about a good part of nine years, right? When we both started with the company, we never had a match ever, 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 no matter. He was heel a lot too. And I was faced majority of the time and we never had this match. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we go down to the Nevada state championship, the finals and we're, this is big. We're, we're supposed to do it. Uh, it's, it's right around COVID. So we're supposed to do it for prime time. Like that was going to be the big thing is we we're going to go out to Dave Marquez's primetime wrestling and finish off the finals there. And so it never happened. So we have to do it at home, which is cool. But uh, Greg's like, man, I need to, I need to, I think I'm going to reinvent myself. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds awesome. Uh, what is, what does that look like? And so he kind of pitched a really raw uh, appearance of what you guys are seeing today, right? It was very bland. It was very like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is kind of the direction I want. So we came up with some cool ideas for the match. Obviously, I went over um, uh, just so I could become the the Grand Slam champion at that point. I think that was kind of the bill for Joe, uh, our Joe DeFalco, our promoter. And, um, and he was going to move on to become like a really dominant heel. Um, so... You know, with G, I, it was because we've been friends for so long and because, you know, within that friends, we also spent a year in China together, you know, because when they wanted people like those guys wanted our FSW students to come over before they went anything outside of, of that. So obviously we pitched Damian Drake and um, at the time his name was Spider, but his name was Thomas Antonio. And they were a tag team. They were called the Midnight Marvels. And they were just young kids because they wanted young kids to come over and train with their young kids. And then we pitched Jacob Austin Young and Gregory Sharp just because those two are dojo kids. Like they want to they do 500 squats and they want to they're, – they're diehard wrestling guys. So uh, that's who ended up coming over. And when me and G finally came up uh, with this match, I said, um, would you mind if we did something completely off, off the thing? And I'm, I'm – I always want to press the line when I have big matches. Um, so do you mind nothing? This has never been done in FSW is where I expose the wood. Would you mind? He's like, no, we let's do it. So we did that. And, um, and the rest is kind of history. You know, he went into last man standing with Jay Vidal and he went into this really great tear where he was just kind of just building his, his, his repertoire and all this stuff. So you started to see new moves. He started to see a new look and he started to see gear. Then he had this like, the demeanor and this persona with him so we fast forwarded a whole like all the way a year later but in that year uh in arizona for whatever reason me and greg worked the program out there so me and g had literally four matches out in arizona before we even touched again after the nevada state here so that that second match we were clean it was just nice and everything was going and at the time i think there were the idea was to put the belt on Greg, but um, for whatever reason, 
they held off. I don't, I'm not really sure as to why that happened. I, I remember going in there and being like, am I not dropping this week? And he was just like, nah, we're going to wait till the anniversary show. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, cool. Uh, so we got to the anniversary show and I'm glad we did, you know, like obviously his, his him being put over should have happened months ago for real, for real. Cause that would have been great for uh, Greg, but would he have been as big as he was? Cause that weekend he walked with the Graph house world title. He walked with the Nevada state world title and it just, it was a huge weekend for him. So uh, for me, I felt like the weight ended up being beneficial and the last match uh, going into it, um, Again, these motherfuckers, man, you walk up out of nowhere and they're just like, hey, you're going to have a no-holds-barred match. I was like, when did <laughs> when is somebody going to tell me about it? So me and G had this no-holds-barred match and we went, yeah, we went we went heavy. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> it's, it was kind of crazy. Coming to the end of our uh, interview, but before I get to the final question, I definitely want to ask what spot in that no-holds-barred match hurt the most? Oh, fuck, bro. Uh I would have to say, like, the two things that probably sucked the most was the um, the door, the door powerbomb. It, like, slid down as, as Greg was, like, propping me up on the on the uh, middle buckle for the Liger bomb, and then it fell all the way down to the bottom rung, even though neither one of us knew that that was happening because if you look at it, his back is turned, my back is turned. We don't know what's happening, and by the time he turns around, his head is in my crotch, and we're going. So – we get, I get Liger bombed, and there is no breaking of the thing. The door snaps, but it's it's just him throwing my lifeless body on that motherfucker. Uh, so, bra da da. Um, and then the only other thing was uh, we had a uh, a guardrail spot where he was going to whip me into the guardrail. I was going to eat the guardrail. He was going to come at me, and I'd flag him over. That did not happen. I went into the guardrail. The whole guardrail flew, flipped over in, into the crowd. So we had to improvise a little bit, but. It was brutal. Uh, I still have like a little bit of a bruise across my back from it. So those were probably the two worst spots in the match. Other than that, you know, G just, he brings it, you know, you just know you're not in for a night off with him. He likes to go and I'm, and I'm happy to do it. You know, like I love working heavy and, and going crazy. There's only two dudes who really kind of do that to me. Uh, Greg's one of them. And then Hammerstone's the other one. You're not going to get a night off with either one of those guys as far as like the brutality and just the way shit is supposed to look. Um, and both uh, drive the car really well. They, they both really kind of, I guess, control the tempo. Like they kind of know how to control a tempo, which I value very much as far as like their work rate. Like I, I value both of them. Um, Hammerstone will always be near and dear to me because uh, we kind of started the same and he's a fucking amazing talent. And probably one of the best uh, in the business at, for, for today. You know, there's a reason why he's the MLW heavyweight champion. And Greg, uh, for me, has always delivered on every night. Like, you know, you're not going to get a bad match with, with him. So I think that kind of is a testament to his character, both as a human being and as a worker. Yeah, that that came off so clearly about Greg. I mean, it, like... <laughs> Like I kept saying, like his energy that he just kept bringing, like when we were talking about, like just the art of pro wrestling and the emotions of it. I was like, dude, can I like bottle this? Like, can I like take this in the morning or something? Like, please, like I need it. I think one of the best moments, uh, or one of my favorite moments, was again I, I pressed the line. Right, I'm always trying to like they like G knows my character. He's like, I know you want to, you know, I know you got to take it far. He's just like, so I need you to kind of think of a spot where we're gonna take it far. And I was like, well, man. I have this spot, you know, I've been watching Braveheart a lot. 
uh, lately. And so I was thinking maybe I'm trying to chop off your head. What do you think with the shovel? And he was just like, kind of gave me that Greg look, you know, with his hair is all fucking crazy and he's got this beard. He's kind of giving me the side eye look. And I'm just like, you cool with it? And he's just like, I guess I am. And I, kudos to him because it was so last second. I for real thought I was going to at least clip him with the end of the shovel. And he was, he moved out of the way perfectly. And um, the spot alone, just putting it online, I got so much feedback on it just looking badass. And we didn't, we didn't do anything that was unsafe. Uh, nobody got hurt and everything was fine as far as the thing, but the visual was just insane. I'm up on a fucking two chairs. I'm about to crush his head and, and the rest is history. And he did, he did, he did eventually uh, go out, grab a brick and smash it into my face, which is another good spot. Uh, it came off really well. So, but I think those, those moments set up for, um, what seemingly was, at least from what I get, there was probably one, if if not the match of the night. Yeah, I mean, both of you. You guys just bring it whenever you go out there. And, I mean, that for sure proved <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, brother. All right, Remy. So, like Justin said before, uh, we got one last question for you. We ask all of our guests this question. Uh, it could be a two-part, depending on how you answer the first one. Sure. So we like to ask our guests if they could do a dream match against any opponents in any type of match. So that could be, you know, a tag, uh, three-way, four-way, any sort of ladder, other, other stipulation match, any venue, any time in history, any wrestler. I know that's a lot to take in, but I don't know if you have one in mind. Nah, man. Bret Hart, Madison Square Garden sounds great to me. I'll do that one. <laughs> uh and uh and i i've actually had my my dream match bro i can i can sit here and tell you both like if wrestling stopped tomorrow i'd be all right because i've already worked liger like liger jushin liger was my ultimate hero as a 19 year old kid watching super j cup tapes from rf video uh that's what me and my boy used to do we used to fucking tape trade and we couldn't get enough of that shit so anything Super J, we were all fucking about it. And my very favorite person was Liger so much to where that's how I found out about the Inoki Dojo was he was doing a seminar. And so uh, me and my boy in 2005 went to the Liger seminar in the Inoki Dojo. We were the only two guys out of the country that went that wasn't a part of the dojo. So when we show up, there's American Dragon, there's Samoa Joe, there's CM Punk, there's uh sin Bodhi, who's a, yeah, a very young sin Bodhi at the time who I did, at the time i i tell him this but don't you know don't repeat it but i thought he was masada <laughs> right so i was just like i was like i i, I was knocking my boy i was just like dude is that a fucking masada he's just like i don't know bro i think so and it wasn't it was sin Bodhi. <laughs> so but uh ricky reyes was there and tjp was there so all of these who's who were in the Liger seminar, and there's just me and my boy, skinny, 5'6", he was 6'1", uh, about a buck 35, both of us, and we got put through the ringer, 500 squats. We couldn't even walk up the stairs the next day. That's how bad it was because we were doing squats and just trying to keep up with those motherfuckers. And then fast forward a year later, that's when we decided that we, if we wanted to take it serious, that that was what we had to do. We had to go out there. And, you know, nine months later, we came out carved like fucking oak uh i thought i would at, at 155 pounds at five six i thought i was the baddest motherfucker on the planet because i thought you could not hurt me i was just like these guys have have thrashed me so brutal that new japan ring is so brutal 
there's nothing you can possibly do. Like I could take an ass whooping, please. And, um, and I think I accredit a lot of my work rate and who I am and a lot of that stuff just from that nine months, because without that, I don't think I'd be nearly what I am today for real. You, you can definitely see it that, that put you through the ringer. And I mean, it shows definitely shows for your ethic. <laughs> so you do technically qualify for part two of this question because the wrestler you said wasn't a current wrestler. So it's the same question, but you only have active wrestlers. All right. Um, let's see, man. Fuck. Um, Cause there's so many good ones now, right? It's, it's really tough um, to kind of get a grip on, on who I would like to work uh, just because everything's so crazy. I think, I think for the notoriety and just kind of a, a weird thing, I'll, I'll go Nick Gage in some sort of death match. You know, I want to kind of walk away with that a little bit. That would be kind of fucking cool. Uh, Cody Hancock, are you guys familiar with Cutthroat Cody? He, um, so he, he had the match with Nick Gage, and I thought, you know, like I, there's no way I can go push that as far as that one, right? But uh, I think that will be like a test. I think majority of the time that I think about these dream matches is like, can I test myself against the other guy, right? So you guys remember the primetime player? I think uh, I, I forgot what, what they called him in WWE, but it's Fred Drosher. Are you, are you guys, you guys know oh, that yeah, guy? He was uh, Darren Young. Darren Young. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so he uh, is, he's a fucking maniac, right? He's a fucking maniac in the ring. Like, I don't know if he has an off switch and I've seen him a few times uh, live uh, with the same show. So I always thought like, I would like to work with him. Um, but off the top of my head right now, my dream match that I, that I keep asking for is Chris Masters. That's who I want, man. I want fucking Chris Masters, He's a big, gigantic human fucking being and he's cool as shit. So, uh, these are, these are the guys who I wouldn't mind working today. Obviously all of the AEW, um, roster, cause they just have the who's who of, of anybody. So you want to get in there with everybody that, that you can do. But when I'm just kind of working off the indies and just, dream matches that I possibly could see myself having within the next six to uh, a year. Like those two definitely come to mind for sure. Awesome. I mean, I'm here for it. I hear you're making, those, <laughs> I hear you're making match with those guys. I'm, I'm looking out for it. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, with the last few minutes of our show here, uh, we like to give our guests an opportunity to plug, promote anything they have going on, be it, you know, shows coming up, merch, social medias, anything like that. So uh, with that, floor is yours. Yeah, man, all, all the socials are 86er Remy Marcel. So at 86er ER Remy Marcel, you can find it on Twitter, uh, all that stuff. Um, go to Future Stars of Wrestling. That's like my home promotion. It's where I put my most heart in, you know, both as a coach and as a producer and as a wrestler. So please support them if you can. Uh, the next few shows, I have uh, a Phoenix show in Arizona. Uh, it's called PCW, but they're like the sister company of the other PCW in California that's kind of getting a lot of notoriety. Uh, and they've been doing really uh, good numbers. Like every show for the last six shows have drawn anywhere between five to 900 people. So it's been pretty amazing, especially post-COVID, you know what I'm saying? Like the fact that actually getting droves of people. I also have been working with uh, the Mass Republic, so a little bit of lucha. You, you, you're going to find your boy doing a lot, lot of lucha lately, um, and those shows have been kind of amazing. Like I worked the Iguana guy, uh, who's fucking awesome. I don't know if you guys are up on him, but he's fucking great. Um, and any anybody that's kind of working on uh, the 
themselves out of like AAA right now. That's kind of what Mass Republic's kind of doing. So I like working with those guys a lot. And then uh, we have another Lucha show that's coming here to Nevada under the Delgado promotions. And uh, they're running out of the Silver Nugget as well. So they last show that they did was their first inaugural show, and they did a pretty good number as well. So catch any of those out. You know, you can always follow my social media to find out exactly where and when. That's it, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, brother. It's been a pleasure talking with you. We appreciate you making time for us. So that was Remy Marcel, FSW, only uh, only FSW Grand Slam champion and FSW original. And very soon, we'll definitely probably be in the FSW Hall of Fame. And that was just a pleasure. And it was really cool that they both him and his rival shot both brought up their experiences in china so that was really cool and i really liked hearing about it just like i do you know i'm big on traveling too and um that's that's a big reason why i wanted to bust in like wrestling and hopefully get a career with a company one day like you know as a podcaster or, or you know future booking genius and, yep future booking genius so i can travel and stuff and hearing about the, how different cultures like view wrestling and stuff like that. And hearing all the back behind the scenes stuff and training stuff. It was really cool. And then also hearing about their recent match, they had no holds bar match the two of these men and hearing both their different takes on it was just uh, really cool. And I can't wait to have Remy on again and learn more about the 86er. And I, I didn't say this during the interview, but I know 86 as being like when a menu item gets cut off in the back of the kitchen at a restaurant, like that, that's where my world 86 means. And I didn't know the uh, eight miles out, six feet deep thing, but now I do. And I'm probably going to use that a lot more often now, actually. Dude, it's a fire chant too. Like we're hearing the crowd eight miles out and six feet deep, eight miles out and doing chants. This is awesome. That is actually pretty badass. Yeah, it's one of the better ones I've heard. And like, I remember first time I heard it, I'm like, I don't know what this means, but I'm going to chant it. This is sick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, that interview was so fun. Like, I was on mute for a lot of it, like when I was just laughing. But some of the stories and some of the ways like he was just talking just got me going. I was I was popping for sure. He, he popped me quite well. But Again, thank you so much to Remy for, for coming on today. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. And uh, we also appreciate y'all listening to us. And if you guys have any other Vegas stars or any other indie wrestler out there that you want to hear us talk to, get more familiar with, you should uh, let us know on social medias. Juice, where can the people do that? And Twitter, capital T, capital O, capital T, capital C, underscore, capital P, lowercase O, lowercase D. Instagram, it's the same, T-O-T-C, underscore, P-O-D-O, lowercase. So let us know what's up. What's up? What's up? But yes, as we come crashing down to the mat on this episode of Top of the Cage, we want to thank you all so much for tuning in. And if you are listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you, specifically you, that person not giving us a five-star review, fuck, I fucked it up. Fuck. I don't fuck it up. I'm perfect. And if you, specifically you, the person listening to this podcast, do not leave us a five-star review, you will not get five-star content. And that is just a fact.
and Matt. again. Oh, and again. Damn, I'm fucking everything up right now. <laughs> well, I was delayed. That's all right. <laughs> We're a mess. It's 11.30 at night for me right now. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we hope to catch you next time.